Welcome to Campaign Chemistry, where we pick the brains of creative alchemists, business wizards, and marketing geniuses behind the world's greatest brands. Media Hub has gone from the media arm of Mullen Lowe to a strong standalone agency in its own right with clients like Netflix, Pinterest, and Twitch. What used to describe itself as the challenger agency for challenger brands has grown beyond its roots to land large heritage accounts, such as being named the AOR for post-consumer brands in March. John Moore leads the IPG-owned agency globally across 13 offices and five continents. He's focused on ensuring that Media Hub is up to date on the most cutting edge platforms and tools for clients while maintaining scale and buying power to advantage them in the upfronts. In this episode, Moore chats about why attracting and developing media talent into quote unquote unicorns who can work across silos is important. He also opens up about the demands of the pitch process and where it can be refined to ease the burden on agencies. I'm your host, Allison Weisbrot, editor of Campaign US, and you're listening to Campaign Chemistry. Hi, John. How are you? So great to have you here today. Yes. Nice seeing you, Allison. I was listening to a couple of other podcasts getting ready for this, and I realized, like many others, uh, I saw you in Cannes for a nanosecond, and I think that's when we decided to do this. Yes, exactly. Yeah, we ran into each other on the Quasset, and yes. uh, like many people do in Cannes. It seems, seems like years ago that we were there, but it's, it's only been a few months. Sorry to the fall frenzy. I don't know if you guys are feeling that at Media Hub, but we certainly are over here oh, yeah. campaign. Yeah, it's uh, back up in the air, different city every day, not remembering what day of the week it is or what city you're in, right back to 2019. It feels wonderful. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of funny, right? It feels like 2020 never happened in nope. some ways. <laughs> so, well, let's- besides the work from home, which I'm sure we'll probably get into sometime in this conversation, we will we will get into. But um, so obviously, Media Hub has has had sort of an interesting journey. You were initially the agency was part of Mullen Low, right? And yes. over the past few years, it's really split off and developed into a really strong brand in its own right in the market. So, talk a little bit about like. Media Hub's trajectory, where the agency, you know, is at is at now from these origins. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think sometimes, you know, Sean Corcoran's the U.S. CEO, and we spend a disproportionate amount of time together and a disproportionate amount of time in different cities. And sometimes we might be sitting, I don't know, in a restaurant or a bar in Los Angeles, and we kind of wonder, like, well, how did we do this? How did we get here? And um, it really is kind of remarkable. I mean, I do think we had a vision we saw long ago that there was this great unbundling, which is probably a whole different topic for a different day. But I think we did realize that for us to be successful, we needed our own brand identity because more and more CMOs, certainly larger clients, have media pitches and creative pitches. Whether we like it or whether we don't like it, that is the way of the world. And we really needed to carve out our own identity. And I think as the client list between the two entities became more and more desperate. We really realized that we needed to control our own P&L because we needed to invest it, we needed to invest money back in Media Hub to be a better media agency. And you know, if you look at creative agencies, they invest in completely different things and media agencies invest in completely different things. I don't think creative agencies are investing in the kind of data and technology that we are. Doesn't make us better, doesn't make them worse. It just, we're really in different businesses. So 
I think the separation really had nothing to do with acrimony. It had to do more. We wanted to control our own destiny. Mm-hmm. And I think the success really has been that we've always had a really clear position. And I think we've always felt a little bit different. I have so much respect for the media agencies out there, so much respect for the competition. My old boss, Joe Grimaldi, uh, used to like to say, all the bad agencies have gone out of business. And I truly believe that. Um, But we've always kind of had this, this position of the media agency for challenger brands, always challenging media, always doing things a little bit differently. And you know, to to uh, bring Sean up again, he always says, we just look different when we walk into a room. So it really has been amazing. I guess the last thing I'll say is, as we go into 2023, and even thinking about 2022, I think our goal is to pitch fewer and bigger. They mm-hmm. still need to be right. But and I know there's a lot of articles on the pitch process now, and we can certainly dive into that later on if you want to, because I certainly have a strong opinion of that. But pitches are brutal. They mm-hmm. are absolutely brutal. And, you know, so you really got to pick your battles. So I think it's about bigger and fewer. And now we've got that critical mass to mm-hmm. be in bigger and fewer. Yeah, well, you're kind of teeing me up for my next question, which is I knew I you know, the positioning of challenger agency for challenger brands, that's sort of been what Media Hub has been known for. But as you start winning and focusing on bigger assignments, like Media Hub just won Media AOR for post-consumer brands recently, bigger, bigger and bigger brands coming into the portfolio. Is Media Hub still a challenger? And then if not, like, how do you evolve that positioning? Yeah, it's a good question. We think about it all the time. In fact, it was interesting when we were in Cannes, probably much to the dismay of the people that I invited, we did a two-day offsite. So on Monday and Tuesday, we locked ourselves in a room from probably like 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. I think a lot of people wanted to be out having fun, looking at the work. But, you know, we flew 35 people to Cannes this year, and we talked about that very thing. And I guess I would answer that in two ways. Number one, the classic definition of a challenger brand is the brand that doesn't spend the most money in the market, and therefore they need a media agency to help amplify that media investment. I think that's kind of still part of who we are, but we've really pivoted to defining challenger differently, which is kind of twofold, I guess. One is, in our minds, a challenger brand is challenging their market. Mm. Do I dare say they're iconoclastic? And what they want from an agency is an agency with experience of working with those kind of brands and an agency that is challenging media. And I think we've kind of pivoted to that position. And I think what's interesting about this year, and um, I, I know you know that, you know, there's this little thing called the Campaign Agency of the Year Award. So we're already kind of thinking through the theme. What's that? <laughs> yeah, what's that? The red thread. And I think this is the year. And it really wasn't planned. I don't know if serendipity is the right word, but this was a year where rather than always thinking about how our clients are challengers, it was almost to turn the lens back on ourselves to figure how we need to challenge ourselves. Mm. And I think this has been a really interesting year because I think we have challenged ourselves in a lot of key key areas. And I think it's been really healthy. 
We'll talk a little more about that. Where have you challenged yourselves? Yeah, I think, you know, it probably starts with disciplines. Um, You know, listen, every agency obviously has their tools and their platforms and there's disciplines. And I think, you know, I mean, who doesn't have a meta group these days, right? Mm -hmm. But um, I think what we really wanted to do is have our ear to the ground and really understand what clients are looking for. You know, we've always had this radical and disruptive group, which I know you're familiar with which Laurel Boyd runs, and it's kind of a creative group within a, within a media company. And it's not, a, I say all the time in new business, we're not creating 30-second uh, spots or 14 by 48 billboards or two-minute videos on YouTube that will make you cry. This is a group that's all about drawing outside the lines. It's about inventing media that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And we've got our comms group, which we call the Inside in Action group, because everything needs a pithy name. So this year, we added a couple other ones. I think one of the ones that was really important, and it's still somewhat in in its nascent stage, is something that we're calling Media Hub Labs. And I was actually in London um, probably about a month ago, and I was having dinner with a client. Client will go unnamed. And he asked me a really interesting question. He said, John, if we live in a platform world, which everybody kind of agrees we live in a platform world, and Google and Meta and Amazon um, own a disproportionate amount of the digital spend. I think if you take China out, it's about 74%. And those platforms are dictating what you can and what you can't do in their platforms. How do media agencies differentiate themselves? Mm. And it was like, wow, that is a really, really good question. It is a good question. Of course I had an answer, but I think on um, on second thought, I'd probably have come up with a better answer. And that's really what Media Hub Labs is all about. And what Media Hub Labs is, it's about uh, creating a group. It's run by a guy named Josh Williams in our London office. He comes from an ad tech background, and he is starting to hire software engineers, What this group does is they're developing technology solutions and scripts that sit on top of the walled gardens. And ironically, the walled gardens are actually very open to that because they have open APIs that allow you to do that. So what Josh's team is really about is creating those technology solutions. So one of them is we created something called Search Hub. And what Mm -hmm. Search Hub does is it sits on top of Google. And if you look at Google, Google is optimizing to paid search. But what Search Hub does, it allows us to really understand SEO and SEM simultaneously. So sometimes we can depress our SEM spend inside of Google if there's a certain point of time where the SEO is stronger. So that's Mm -hmm. a perfect example of a script that Mm -hmm. we layer above the walled garden. So that's one place that we've really double down. So I don't know, before I go to maybe one other thoughts, questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, I think you're getting at a really interesting point, which is that, um, you know, media, it's, it's changing the value that a media agency can bring to a client. It used to be, and it still is to a certain extent, all about scale and all about, you know, power and buying power. And if you're negotiating in the upfronts, it still is about that, but there's so much more complexity. It's about getting inside these platforms, understanding how they work, tying them together. Um, So do you feel like for Media Hub is having that more digital, more platform focus? Like, is that how you see yourselves growing into the future? Are you involved at all in sort of like the, the upfronts? Like what's the, how do you sort of split in that sense? 
Yeah, I think it's both, but even the upfronts are changing. Yeah, for um, sure. And maybe I'll go into that in, in a second. But yeah, you know, it's interesting. I don't want to name any competitors on this, but, um, you know, well, I guess I will. Why not, right? You know, you look at an entity like a jellyfish or brain labs, I think it's just really interesting what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you're a media hub or one of the more established media agencies out there, and we all know who they are, um, it's just kind of interesting. You have to kind of look and say, hmm, they, they're doing kind of interesting things. Or even like, you know, a PMG, I think they really mm -hmm. turned a lot of heads when they won the Nike US business. So I think, you know, what did they used to say? Like, you know, Bill Gates or Steve Jobs, the thing that kept them up at night was, you know, the two 15-year-olds in their garage developing the next thing. I think the competition is coming from different places. And I actually think that's good because mm -hmm. we all know that, more competition and competition makes you better. So yeah, I think platforms are incredibly, incredibly important and understanding how to navigate those walled gardens. I mean, the upfront is a really good segue to a second group that we created. Again, somewhat nascent. Um, it was funny, I was on the phone with the team this week and the group is basically our advanced video advertising group, which doesn't roll off the tongue, but they reminded me that the name of the group is Ava, which I think sounds much more interesting and kind of sounds like a hurricane, doesn't it? A, li a little bit, but... Oops. I was going to say, a lot of media terms don't really roll off the tongue, so... No, <laughs> but, you know, I don't need to tell you, or this is not going to be the epiphany of the podcast, that more and more dollars are moving from linear into streaming, and, you know, I know we're probably talking a little bit about what clients are asking for, but obviously everything is interconnected. And one of the things the clients are asking for is to better understand this world of video or television or whatever you want to call it now. So we have um, a woman named Laurie Casorla, and she's running this group. And really, it's about a couple things. Laurie is kind of consultative. So if a client does ask a team member, I really just need somebody to uncomplicate this whole television or video arena. Laurie can come in and spend a half an hour and kind of she's got a deck prepared and mm. give her perspective. And then the other area is just research. And I mean, you guys have written a lot about this, you know, Nielsen or iSpot or Comscore or VideoAmp and who's going to win and who's not going to win. And it gets incredibly complicated because Nielsen has just built this. I mean, every every client's bases are built on Nielsen years mm -hmm. and years and years. And what are we going to use? Video amp for one client and Nielsen for another client. So she's also playing a core role in what research we move um, moving forward. So, you know, when it comes to the upfronts, the upfronts are still really important. And I will be very transparent. We have a couple of big linear clients. We have Fox Entertainment, Fox Sports as a client. We, I still call them Viacom. Even our clients call it Viacom. It's Paramount now. We have MTV and VH1. We've got this little brand called Netflix, as you know, is getting into the advertising game. And I asked them, is linear, like what is the value of linear television outside of sports and news? Everybody knows live still has tremendous value. And I don't think in a biased way, they said, if you look at any media mix model, TV still works. Linear mm. TV still works. Now, again, there's exceptions to every rule, obviously. 
But for the majority of our large clients that need to move a lot of product quickly, linear TV outside of sports and news still rings the cash register. So I think the upfront is still incredibly, I mean, you know, people have been trying to get rid of the upfront forever, right? I, I mean, I don't know whether that'll ever happen, but the upfront in this current stage, I think is serves a purpose. It's important to clients. They all want to know your upfront strategy. They all want to know how you move as a holding company. I just think it looks a little bit different because it's streaming and linear simultaneously. And what's the balance? Yeah, well, to your point, I mean, you're bringing up like all of the measurement partners and kind of like the drama that happened last year with Nielsen. Um, it seemed like there was a lot of like movement in terms of alternative currencies for for measuring TV. Mm -hmm. But then I saw a report come out and I'm, I don't remember who it's from. So take this with a grain of salt. Mm -hmm. But it said something like very small number of, um, of brands transacted on alternative or new currencies in the upfront. So what do you make of that? Did your clients try these new providers? And is it really just that Nielsen is so entrenched? Yeah. Um, so my understanding of our video investment group is that, well, in fact, I know this for a fact. I, 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 I do not believe, take this with a grain of salt, my understanding is Nielsen is still where we are doing the majority of our negotiation. And trying to think is I obviously don't want to get my, my myself into, in, into trouble on this, but I think I maybe can say this. I think, listen, it goes back to competition is good. Monopolies are not good unless you're the monopoly stating the obvious. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You go back to the 1905, 1906, Vanderbilt, you, you know, Ford, all the, you know, the magnates of back then monopolies were good because they were monopolies. So I think Video Amp, Comscore, they've all made Nielsen better. I think from what I hear is the competitors will talk as much about what Nielsen isn't doing versus what they are doing. And I'll probably get myself into trouble for that, but that's okay. You have to have a little, you got to make it a little provocative, right? Yeah, come on, make and, it a good listen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think Nielsen won is something that the team that spends a disproportionate amount of their time thinking about this, they are very bullish on Nielsen One, and they feel that if Nielsen One gets it right, it'll be good for the marketplace and it will be good for Nielsen. And Nielsen, even though obviously the publicity has not been good for the past 24, 36, 48 months, I still think they're the leader. Okay. I mean, I think I think you're correct there. I think there's a lot of noise and maybe not a lot of uh, action behind it. But I also want to follow up on, um, you mentioned Netflix is your client. Are you, is Media Hub helping them launch this new ad business? Like what involvement do you have with that in terms of promoting it? Are they going to be doing like a big B2B campaign that we can expect soon? I mean, the answer to that is we have less to do with it than more to do with it. Just, just to be perfectly honest with you. Have they asked for consultation? Sure. Why wouldn't they? I mean, they're going to be out in the market selling to a myriad of advertising and media agencies were one of them. So they have certainly used us as a sounding board, but I'm not sure, you know, we're not involved really mm. beyond, beyond that. Okay. What are you looking forward to about their ad business? 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think it's it's not just their ad business. I think it's it, it I I think I look at, at somebody like a Netflix and Apple. Mm. And you know, Apple is going to get in the meta space. That is a place where they are going to start to generate another revenue. I mean, they they've been gener- generating revenue off of advertising, but I think they want to generate more money off of advertising. And I think what's interesting to me from an Apple and a Netflix, I guess, is twofold. One is we all know that elusive consumers have always tended to be a little bit younger. And we all know that elusive customers have always been a little bit more affluent. And if you can reach younger affluent consumers simultaneously, that's the bullseye for a lot of brands. So does Netflix and Apple open you up to maybe a new set of consumers that you haven't been able to reach before? Because one of the things we talk about clients all the time, and we actually do proprietary studies on this, if you look at the landscape, there's probably 35 to 45% of media consumption time, depending on the demographic where you can't even reach somebody with an ad. So just think about that. Just just get your head wrapped around that for a second. 20 years ago, at least you had 100% of the available inventory. Mm -hmm. That has now shrunk to like 60% because you historically, you can't advertise on HBO. You can't advertise on Amazon Prime, at least when you're watching an Amazon Prime show. You can't advertise on HBO Max. Again, I'm going back five years ago. So think about all of the affluent eyeballs that that took out of the marketplace. So I think I'm excited that there's an opportunity where we can reach those consumers again, even though I think it's going to be really interesting to see which consumers opt for a lower rate to get ads and which Mm. don't opt. But I think what I think we're all hoping is that the ad experience is a little bit different. You know, I mean, I do mm-hmm. give Hulu a lot of credit. I think when Hulu, you know, they were really the first streamer to break advertising. What was it? Six, seven, eight, nine years ago. I don't know. It feels like a long time ago. And, you know, they were toying around with a lot of different things beyond the 30 second spot. So I think what I'm looking forward to, I guess, in summary would be the audience that maybe we can now reach more pervasively and are there different canvases and more interesting canvases that we can reach these consumers? Mm, yeah, I think I think um, hopefully Netflix is uses some of that creativity for its ad business. So you brought up pitching before, and you said you had strong strong oh, opinions. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about what um, what new business looks like right now, and how maybe Media Hub is is changing the way it approaches the new business landscape. Yeah. Um, It's interesting because I've been reading a lot of articles and you can see, you know, you've got three parties, right? You've got consultants, you have clients, and you have agencies. And I would say, I don't know, 50% of our pitches are without consultants. 50% of our pitches are with consultants. The bigger the pitch, the more likely there is to be a consultant. Okay, that's not any great epiphany either. So let's just take those three constituencies for a second. 
David Ogilvy, right? I've got to, I've got to, I've got to date myself, right? And bring up David Ogilvy. I don't know how many people bring up David Ogilvy on your podcast, but <laughs> Ogilvy on advertising, which is still, I don't care if you're in media, creative, I think it should be mandatory reading for anybody that gets into this business. He once said, probably in like 1962, 63, 64, I think a client should be able to look at the body of work that an agency has done in the past, decide whom they want in the pitch, and ultimately decide what agency they want to work with. I don't think it's that easy, to be perfectly honest with you. I do think clients need to see work for them. So I'm going to put myself on the side of the angels with that. Um, But I think, and I love all my consultants, I do think sometimes, sometimes, they make it more arduous than it needs to be. That's about as politically correct as I can be. Um, In what way? I just think that, and I I just, I obviously want, you know, I mean, there's, you know, off the record, this would be a different different conversation, obviously. (laughs) Um, I just think sometimes we read an RFI and we say to ourselves, and, and any agency under truth serum will agree with what I'm about to say is, do you need to see this much? Mm. <laughs> yeah. Well, how, mu- how much are they asking for? I'm curious. It, depends and on that- the pitch. it just depends on the pitch. I, I, I mean, some of them, I mean, listen, let me, you just can tell, sometimes I'll get a brief from a, from a consultant and I'll say, that's a really good brief. Mm-hmm. A, you can tell the consultant wrote it just for them. It was not a copy and paste. B, there's a certain amount of brevity in it. C, you really understand what they're looking for. And D, it's not 75 rounds and 75 workshops. Mm-hmm. That's about as clear a- 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 as I can say it. So I guess for me, back to the pitch, you know, I think agencies are in a place of, well, can't we just show you what we've done for other clients? And you should be able to make, and this is in all agencies. I mean, I'm, I don't want to paint cons- you know, all three constituencies with one brush, obviously. Right, I just, right. Agencies are basically here and clients and consultants are here. And I really think they're somewhere in the middle, to, to be perfectly honest with you. Mm-hmm. And if I was a client I guess I would definitely want to see the agency's thinking for my brand. I could never hire an agency based on their thinking for another brand, but I would, I would try to make it as painless as possible and get what I need. Well, do you feel like that, you know, that, that clients are aware of this, that they're maybe burdening agencies with their pitch requests? Like, is this a conversation that's happening between agencies and clients at all? Or is it sort of just everyone sitting in their own side of it? Like, seething a little bit. I think there's a lot of that. <laughs> I will tell you that um, this is a funny story. I can say this without naming the client. It's right before COVID, I was actually in our LA office. So what would that have been? That would have been February, 2020. We got an RFP from a, a well-known client, but they spent maybe 40, $45 million. I was excited about the opportunity. They had a lot of clients. There's a strong client network out there, as you can imagine. So I got a note from the prospective client. This was not through a consultant. Hey, John, 
we're client X. Um, you know, I have a lot of friends on the West Coast, other clients. We've heard great things about Media Hub. I've really admired your work. We want you to be in the pitch. I was like, great. You know, that's so much better. They already know who we are. They have other clients that have vouched for us. I got the RFI and I was like, are you kidding me? I got on the phone with a client and I was like, oh God, how do I broach this? And I said, listen, this feels like an InBev RFI. I, I just, I'm just, I'm just trying to be honest with you. This feels like an RFP for a $500 million pitch. And not that I don't want to, I, I love your brand. I use your brand. I'm excited about this. I just, this is, this is just too much for us. I think, I think we're going to have to pass on the opportunity. I had no idea what kind of reaction I was going to get, Allison. I assumed it was going to be a pretty negative reaction. And she said to me, you know, John, I'm so glad that you said this to us because you know what? I agree. Mm. The problem is they were a portfolio of brands. And when they let each of the portfolio write the questions that they wanted in the RFP, it ended up being like 75 questions. And she didn't change it, of course, you know, but but she was really, really appreciative of the candor and the honesty and actually agreed with me. Now, of course, five media agencies pitched it. One agency won it. But for us, you know, the old saying is the juice just wasn't worth the squeeze. Mm-hmm. And I just thought they were making it a much more arduous than it had to be. And, you know, we always say, Allison, we media, we always want to be in a position where we don't have to chase business. And we always want to be in a position where we can pitch, A, what we think we have a disproportionate chance to win, and we're really excited about. The worst thing that happens is when an agency gets themselves into a situation where they're chasing business because they have to hit their revenue numbers by the end of the year. So I'm curious, is this sort of um, the push for like more questions in the RFI longer and more arduous pitches. Is this coming from the consultancies? Like, is this like, do they get paid by the hour? Or I, I, I think I'm going to do a no comment on that. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> Fair enough. So one thing that is sort of um, related though, is like just the, the, the nature of the economy right now. Right. And like, hmm. is that going to drive clients to do more pitches or are they sort of sticking with the agencies that they have right now? How is like economic uncertainty sort of changing their media strategies and outlook? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, it's interesting. I um, I was talking to somebody about this very question. Um, R3 is, um, you know, one of not only uh, do they run pitches, but they also do a pretty good new business league. And um, they did an interesting chart where they took it might have been first half 22 versus first half 2021. And they showed um, the decrease in creative pitches and the decrease in media pitches. And I don't remember the statistics right off the right off the top of my mind. I think media pitches were down 37% year to year and creative pitches were down 50% year to year. So I know there had been fewer creative pitches this year than media pitches, which has kind of been the way the market has been for a while. It's kind of a good news, bad news, right? Bad news is you don't get as many opportunities. The good news is maybe it's not your accounts that are up for review. So you can look at both both sides. But point is they're down this year. Um, 
I think why are they down? Um, I don't I don't think there's a silver bullet answer. I think what we actually talk about is less to do with the economy and more because the activity has been so great in the last 24 to 36 months that maybe there's just kind of a natural mm-hmm. decline because it has been, you know, such a kind of a lollapalooza of, yeah. of, of, of media pitches. But all of a sudden, it is amped back up on the media side mm-hmm. out of kind of nowhere. And maybe it was the first summer where people actually said, I feel like I'm in a summer of non-COVID. I, this is all speculation on my part. But I would say, in fact, we had a meeting yesterday. I was in our New York office. I just flew back from New York today. And we had kind of a, a meeting with about five or six of us just going down the list because we can't pitch everything. You know, you can't, no agency can pitch eight things well simultaneously. Uh-uh. You have to make some hard choices. And it's it's all of a sudden gotten very, very active. And I guess the last thing I'll say, what's kind of interesting is, yes, I mean, the economy, I mean, listen, maybe, you know, just the, the, the stock market has gone from 36,000 to whatever it went down to, 29, 28.9. I think it just went above 30,000. But there's certain sectors, not surprisingly, that are still strong. There's certain sectors that are in the middle and there's certain sectors that are tanking. And, you know, it's interesting. We have always been a very strong media agency for travel brands. And in April of 2020, you can imagine the agita that that gave us. But revenge travel, it is back. And people mm. might not be going out to dinner three nights a week, but they're not skimping on travel. So Royals business is still super strong. And JetBlue's business is strong. And Wyndham Hotels business is strong. So there are certain sectors that are going against the grain. It's interesting because you have a handful of tech clients as well, right? And the tech companies are starting to like do layoffs, pull back a little bit. Um, Has that impacted you? And on the travel point, like, I guess, is this an example of why it's important to be a well-diversified agency in terms of your client base? It it, it is. I I mean, I I guess that's that's as much uh, as I'll say around that. Um, But... You know, I can say this because it's public knowledge. I mean, Pinterest just um, broke their largest branding campaign in the history of the company in Germany, the UK and the US, and they are still 100 percent behind it. Right. That's good. So um, on the topic of sort of pitching and I guess how it it puts a strain on staff, the talent market. I know it's been ups and downs yeah. for the past couple of years. I personally have been hearing that media talent in particular is hard to come by, whether they're working at tech companies or elsewhere. But what are you seeing at, at Media Hub? How are you attracting and, and retaining talent? Yeah, well, the good news is that we have less open jobs than we've probably had in 24 months. and. I think it's probably a combination of two things. I think one is that we have done a good job attracting talent, but let's just be honest. um, Agencies are starting to tighten their belt. I don't think that's, again, I'll use the word epiphany. I don't think that's any great epiphany. So again, the good news is we have fewer job openings right now than we've had in a while. 
the places that are really tough to find people and great people are inaddressable. Mm. Uh, you know, if I was giving any young person wanting to break into this business advice and they were looking for job security, I would say go into paid search or paid social or programmatic because good people are really hard to find in those areas. I mean, addressability and buying audiences with data in addressable platforms and optimizing the business outcomes versus media outcomes. That is where there's obviously a tremendous amount of energy. It's where clients are putting a disproportionate amount of money. It's where we're putting a disproportionate amount of money. And I guess, and I'll talk a little bit about some of the tactics that we're using, but the other thing I would say, and these people are really hard to find, and we're starting to train some of them, is if you're a person that can kind of sit on the top and understand paid search and understand paid social and understand programmatic, and you have a purview and an expertise among all three of those, you are a unicorn. (laughs) You know, clients want to talk to you because you can talk about the entire landscape of addressability. I mean, listen, when it comes to talent, we've done a lot of things that all the other agencies have done, right? I mean, first, we probably had to pay our people more money. I mean, you know, nothing talks like money. I often said, you know, millennials, they still love their money and God bless them. They should love their money. I've I've often told young people, never be afraid to ask for more money if you deserve more money. You know, I think that would be disingenuous. Um, And we've done a lot of things where we've been more flexible, you know, unlimited vacation. We've taken, um, you know, the four-year degree off. We are going into multicultural colleges and we are looking um, for more talent to become a more diversified and better workforce. So we're doing all the things that every other agency is doing. I think maybe some of the things that we're doubling down on, which might be a little bit different than what some of the other agencies are doing. I think we really want our best people to reinvent themselves and we give them permission to reinvent themselves. And I, quite frankly, have reinvented myself many times within the same agency. So, you know, if you look at some of these disciplines, I mean, Laurel Boyd, she was a digital media person. Mm-hmm. She now is running the R&D group. Laurie Casorla was a TV buyer. She is now running Ava. Um, Fimaris Pena, she was a group media director recently, 40 over 40. Thank you she very was. much. Congratulations. And she is now running, you know, our diversity, our, our, our demand and supply group. So I think we encourage people where if you see something that you want to do differently, that is better, that's going to push your career forward, that's going to help our clients, that's going to push our agency forward, we want to hear from you. And I don't know, maybe that's not that different. Maybe maybe, maybe some agencies are doing that. I think the other thing we've really doubled down on, and I can say this, I did not go through this, but you know, there was an old saying that when Leo Burnett had a media department, that they had the best training in the world. It was like the Harvard, Yale, Cornell of media training. Like if you could get out of Leo Burnett's media training, you really knew what you were doing. So we created something called Media Hub University probably about four or five years ago. But in the last two years, we took uh, a woman named Allison Tierney. She was running business. We've basically taken her off of every single piece of business but one. She's very Mm -hmm. attached to Staples. So Staples 
If you're listening to this, Allison is not going anywhere. And she basically runs Media Hub University. That is a not a full time job, but that is a big part of her job. And the feedback that we have gotten from the 20 somethings has been has been really remarkable. In fact, I teach a class, you know, it was funny, Allison goes, John, I know you're so busy, do you have time to teach a class? So the class that I teach every year is on how to write a deck and how to present. Mm. And I really enjoy it. You know, I've done it now three years in a row. So I think MHU, which we call it for short, has really helped. Um, And then I guess the last thing I'll say is, People want to work on pieces of business that they can relate to. Mm. And I think we have a really good roster. We have a roster that I'm very proud of. And I think it does attract people want to work on Netflix. Mm -hmm. People want to work on Chipotle. People want to work on Pinterest. People want to work on JetBlue. It helps. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I guess one thing that you'd mentioned was that like that unicorn hire, right? Somebody who could see across all these different disciplines and agencies in the past, they've been very siloed. And I think that's talent learns very siloed skill sets. Like, is it is it just going to be on agencies to train these people like or do they exist or do we have do you have to make them? I think you have to make them. I think you have to make them. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Um, It's it's interesting. I, I, I asked a couple of the senior people at Media Hub. And I, and I said, why aren't we developing more unicorns? And paid search people really like paid search. I mean, <laughs> it's science. You know, just think about it. If you're like really into numbers and biddable and, you know, Google's a fascinating landscape stating the obvious, like they don't want to, like they like search. And it's the same thing, like paid social like if you're in paid social now, God, you get to deal with Meta and TikTok and Snap and YouTube. I mean, it's kind of where all the energy, all the heat, I think, is in paid social. And paid mm-hmm. social, you know, they really drive our influencer strategy and influencers are fascinating. And Laura Boy was telling me the other day about virtual influencers seem to be emerging out of the metaverse. And and clients love virtual influencers because influ- virtual influencers can't do anything stupid where, <laughs> you know, you're you're scrambling because your influencer did something. And then programmatic, it's like paid search. It just it's I just found it fascinating. Like they really, mm. really like what they're doing. And you go and you say, hey, wouldn't you like to learn programmatic and paid social? <laughs> Not really. No. <laughs> interesting uh gotta make it a little more enticing i guess um well john i have a million more questions for you but unfortunately we are running out of time thank you so much for joining me on the podcast huh it did go fast i know and i didn't even get to all my questions (laughs) but thanks for joining me yeah thank you so much allison we'll chat soon and hopefully in person that's all the time we have for this week thanks for listening and we'll see you next week If you like what you heard, please subscribe to Campaign Chemistry on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts.